0: Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Matthew chapter 12, continuing through Matthew. I, today, I feel like after three weeks of a 9.30 service only, I feel like we had a little bit of a time change this week. I, uh, the 10.30 service, all, a bunch of people are happy there. I know Ellie, my daughter, has been grumpy the last three weeks. She's like, I don't like the combined service. You know, She's got to come to church an hour early, but for all of us, we got to sleep in. And so I, I feel like some of us are still sleeping in today. So um, so Matthew chapter twelve or Matthew chapter twelve verses thirty eight through fifty I do want to thank alternatives uh, for Cana coming to represent alternatives. It was very last minute with with uh, with Ben and Beth and Bradley moving to Japan. It dawned on me like last week i 'm like ah, next week is Sanctity of human life so so thankfully my my service on the board for four years i'm you know I have tammy 's texting ability i said tammy i need somebody next sunday she's like we got it no problem and you did great and and correct me if i'm wrong a, a, a very easy way very low commitment way to get involved in alternatives is it every fridays or is it every thursdays for prayer at mm-hmm. uh, thursdays at 9 a.m uh, 830. so 8:30 to 9 on thursdays at alternatives they pretty much have a time for praying for their patients and for their ministry and and they open it up to everybody so if you were ever wanting just to, to pop in on a thursday at 8:30. um um, you could do that. I, um, I I'm very thankful for them. It's we always think of of young girls in a crisis pregnancy situation, but after serving on the board, I, I really I realized how I was always shocked with the numbers of those that were in their their mid 30s, married, had a couple kids that would come in. Um, and as a man who's who is has scars in this area of my own life, seeing how they minister to men who have gone through. Uh, participated in abortions. It really is um, a, a neat ministry, and I'm grateful for them. Um, uh, the Howards are safely in Japan. You can still text Ben and Beth. You know, their phones work there, so feel free to harass them. Just realize they're, they're essentially seven hours behind us, but just on the other, like a day forward. So the way my mind works, I subtract seven hours. That's what time it is, but it's tomorrow. So it's, they're 17 hours ahead, but do it... At adding 17 hours is far too complicated for me than subtracting seven for some reason. So, um, so, so they're there. They're 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 uh, they're settling in. Um, I cracked up. I heard this morning that the church, to be nice to them, had stocked their whole uh, the the apartment with American food. It's like, man, they don't even know them. Like they would be better off stocking it with Asian food. <laughs> so poor Bradley's having to suck up uh, uh, macaroni and cheese, which is very unlike him. So. Uh, and then next Tuesday, so not this Tuesday. A lot of the details aren't um, are not uh, worked out. But Bobby Workman from the second service, her granddaughter, Krystalyn, um passed away a couple weeks ago, and they're they're doing they're going to have an 11 a.m. service at the at the graveside, and then following that, they're going to have a little reception in here. And so I don't know the details. A, a few people have told me they could help, but if you're available to come just to kind of you know prepare and clean up and help people, it's it's a uh, it's very a afflu- It's always a fluid thing, but just to be able to, to come and to serve the family and help them would be very appreciated. Um, just see, you can see me or, or Melanie, but I'm I'm thinking that it'll probably be like a 10:30 in the morning to about one p.m. ish is is my is my guess on on the timeline. Uh, so with that, let's pray, and we'll continue in the Gospel of Matthew. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you, Lord, for the Gospel of Matthew. Lord, for um, how you used this, uh, this man, Matthew, this tax collector, uh, Lord, how you impacted his life, Lord, how your spirit um, moved in his life, Lord. I thank you for his account, Lord, of of the story of Christ. And so, Father, we pray that as we study uh, this section today, Lord, we ask that your spirit would guide us, Lord. May your spirit illuminate the meaning of the text, Father, may we understand what was going on in the original context, in the setting in which it happened. And Father, I pray that you would help us to bridge the gap of the the 2,000 years and cultures. Um, Lord, that we would be led by the Spirit to understand how this applies to our life. Lord, we pray that you would move us closer to yourself. Lord, we are grateful um, for the freedom in Christ. We are thankful for your grace We are thankful, Lord, that it is by your blood that we have been washed clean. Father, we ask that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with his generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and they live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and mother. And Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now as we work our way through this text. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, as we've gone through chapter 12, we've been working our way through chapter 12. Chapter 12 sort of marks, um, chapter 12 in many ways is sort of like the, the pinnacle of, of Matthew. This, um, by by many scholars believe that chapter 12 is sort of the the, the official rejection of Israel of their Messiah, that, that in this chapter, we see the full, um, the, 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 the nation of Israel, the, the leaders have rejected their king. And as the story unfolds, we'll get to the crucifixion, but this is sort of the pinnacle. The, um, as you look at the whole of Matthew, this is where um, the tension sort of comes to its crescendo. Um, the, the leaders at a point of, of ultimate rejection. It's the story is almost funny in some ways, if it wasn't so sad. Uh, verse 38, it, it seems so innocuous. It seems so uh, innocent in many ways. We see in verse 38, um, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And so it seems if you just sort of picked up the story in Matthew here, you think, oh, the leaders are coming. They they're coming to a place where they believe they want. They just they just need a little something to kind of push them over the edge. That if, that if he would do a sign for them, then they would believe. Um, but this isn't the heart of that question. Um, when, I, when I look at this story and I look at life, as I, especially as, as, a, as, as somebody who's been walking with Christ and sort of engaging with those who don't know Christ, I've come to see that there are, there are basically two general types of questions or categories, maybe. Not two types, but two categories of, of questions or questionnaires there are people who are very genuine in their their quest to understand god what is who is this jesus what are his claims what has he done they, they come with very genuine honest meaningful questions and then there's the other camp of questioners who they have no intention of coming to christ their questions are are solely for the purpose of bringing condemnation or basically excusing their behavior and their lifestyle and they, they there's there's nothing you could say that would actually bring them to to the truth. And so these scribes and Pharisees, they they come to to Jesus. They refer to him as as teacher, as as rabbi. Lord, well, they don't say Lord. They say to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Please give us a sign. But if we look at the context, how many miracles have they seen up to this point? Just in this chapter alone. In 12.13, we see that uh, they're in the synagogue, and there's the man with the withered hand. And they're questioning him on the Sabbath. Is it, is it lawful to do a miracle of healing on the Sabbath? And Jesus responds to them about, if you lose one sheep, of course on the Sabbath, you're going to go get that sheep back. And so he tells this man with the withered hand to reach out to him, and the hand is miraculously healed before them. As we move down two verses in verse 15, it says that of the people who followed him... He healed all of them. We have no idea what the the numbers are of these people that were healed. But Matthew makes it seem like that there are many, many people who are in need of, of physical healing. And we're told that he heals them all. And then in verse 24 of chapter 12, they see Jesus casting out demons from an individual. Verse 24 says, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons. And only by Beelzebul can the, um, by the, ruler of, uh, the ruler of the demons. So they basically see the miraculous things. And when they see Jesus doing these things, they say, well, he's, do- he's casting out demons. They're not even denying of what he's doing, but he say he's doing it by the power of Satan. And Jesus goes on to explain to them the unpardonable sin, this sin of denying the work of the Messiah where the spirit is upon him. And it's out of this story from there that we read that they ask this question. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. They didn't really want to see a sign. They, they wanted to see a sign so that they can accuse him further of doing the work of saying that they could further condemn him to build their case. And so when we understand the heart of their question, it helps us understand how Jesus replies to them. Because Jesus' response is harsh, to put it mildly. When I see this story, I I I think of these two categories of questions. If I find that somebody's coming to me and they're asking a legitimate question, that they they sincerely are on their sort of quest of trying to figure out who Jesus is, man, I will kill myself coming up with answers. Like I've spent. So much time, somebody will email me a question, and I, and I will take it to the very end, helping them. Uh, like, I'll never forget, he's a friend of mine. He's, a, he's our brother in Christ now. But, but one officer that I was on a ride-along, and I'm out way past my bedtime. It's 1 in the morning. We show up at the scene. We're walking back to the car. I'm with another police officer, and this other officer, basically, at 1.30 in the morning, he says, I have a question for you okay what's your question i'm like i'm really tired right now what are, like what's the question he's like, Can you explain the whole sovereignty of God and predestination to me? <laughs> i'm like it's one thirty in the morning i 'm riding with another cop. We have about thirty seconds. Are you serious and he 's like well my time i 'm not known for good timing and so then it led to this sort of this I said, well, let me email you. And so I emailed him sort of like, hey, are you being serious? Like, cause I, like, I don't want to get in trouble. I I will tell you what I think on this. This isn't, this is something that people sort of have, (laughs) there's varying opinions. And I'm like, if you're asking me, I'm happy to go down the road. He's like, no, no, no. I'm basically asking you to evangelize me. Like, I'm really serious. And it led to basically 10 months of me like, some of the wackiest questions, and, and but he was sincere, and so I would chase them all the way to the end, try to collect all the information. Because he's sincere, and, and, and praise the Lord, not because of anything I did, but he's a brother in Christ now. But then there's like, I think of last Saturday, I, I, it's, I think I had a late night or something, so I was basically, or maybe I was having a slow start is probably the better way to say it. Um, so I'm like, not necessarily like, It was probably like 10 in the morning, but I hadn't exactly like showered or brushed my teeth or anything like that. And I'm like, I'm going to go get the morning paper. So I step out the door and at my neighbor's house, I see a car pulling up and there's like four or five people um, are all in suits with their, their bags around, you know, their sashes and all their literature. And they're going to my neighbor's house. It's a Jehovah's witnesses. I see them and my adrenaline starts going. I'm like, no, it's a Saturday morning. I like haven't had my cup of coffee. And I see them, they're like, wave at me, and I'm like, good morning, don't even bother coming to my house, I'm good, like, I'm good, just to, you know, they're like, okay, and I kind of walk in, I'm like, I'm a terrible pastor, but it's like, <laughs> I'm like, it's Saturday, like, I had, the Howards are with us, they don't want a dialogue with me, they they have their own agenda, and nothing I say, so I'm just like, have a good day, don't even bother coming up my driveway, and they didn't, and so, but, but I'm kind of like, thinking like, oh, I'm terrible, like a... But I think that there's, a, like, there's discretion. Like there, there are people who just, they're not looking for questions. I heard of one evangelist who was in England, and he was more of a town hall evangelist. And he was at a college campus, and basically all of these students are basically attacking him. And he sat them all down. He's like, listen, if you guys have serious questions, I'll talk with you till the sun comes up the next day. But if you're arguing with me just to justify your lifestyle and you have no intention... He's like, I'm not going to waste my time. And so I think there's discretion in how we respond to people, getting to the heart of it. And that's a difficult thing. Um, But here, Jesus is God, and he understands their heart. And so when he responds, it's harsh. He basically tells them, listen, uh, you're not getting a sign. You're not getting a miracle. I'm not going to demonstrate anything to you but one sign, the resurrection. But as we look at this story, for him to demonstrate the miracle of the resurrection It's almost sort of funny that the miracle that he's going to give to them is only after they kill him. (laughs) I I stumbled across an illustration by F.F. Bruce concerning skeptics, uh, concerning Jesus being on trial by us, and he illustrates uh, the folly of it in this way. He says, when a tourist goes into an art museum to look at a masterpiece on display, any critique That the tourist might have on the masterpiece is really irrelevant. The critique tells us more about the visitor than it does about the masterpiece. You see, it's not the masterpiece, but the visitor that is on trial. It's the same with the Pharisees or anyone else evaluating Jesus Christ. When you are making an evaluation or judgment of Jesus, you are the one on trial not the Son of God. It is actually the condition of your heart that will be exposed by your evaluation. I read this and I suddenly felt condemned about a visit I made in, uh, I believe it was February of 2003. Anne and I had been married. We were celebrating our one-year anniversary, so she wanted to take me to where she grew up. We spent like three and a half weeks in Spain and as we were getting ready to leave um, after New Year, it was around New Year's. I don't know if it was before New Year's or after. She's like, "Well, you, it's, we're in Madrid, and, and we have to go um, to the Prado." At the time I was like a young, I was Navy Seal, I like art, like. I, and so I, I was sort of like, "Oh, we're gonna go to the Prado. It's free, right? Like I can go to the Balboa Park and walk in free." And and then like it was like at the time it seemed ridiculously expensive. I have no idea what it actually cost. But I remember, like I read this, and I, I think of myself walking through the Prado, rolling my eyes. All I wanted was a cup of coffee, and you weren't allowed to bring coffee in there. You're not allowed to take pictures in there, and I'm and I'm looking, like rolling my eyes, like, who's this Rembrandt guy? <laughs> Picasso? <laughs> Picasso? Who's he? <laughs> and it's and like, he he, you Pica- you're joking, right? I'm like, what Picasso? I, uh. he's like. <laughs> She was very embarrassed. And so I spent like four hours going through this going, why is this one so spectacular? I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. And so I read this and I'm like, oh man, I'm so condemned. See, those, all of those paintings, they'd been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. Like anybody who knows anything about art, like see, and I'm saying names and I still don't really know. And my making fun of them is really a condemnation on my lack of being refined or you know, understanding fine art. And so F.F. So f. Bruce makes this brilliant illustration. Jesus isn't on trial. Jesus spoke the world into existence. He created us. He, he holds all things together. So when he steps down on, into earth and lives his life, uh, making a way f- that we might have a relationship with God, that our sin might be paid for, we have no position. Our critique means nothing. And for us as believers who believe and are sharing about Jesus, it's not our, it's not our position to argue in the sense to make him true, to, 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 to win the argument. Jesus is Lord. And so the person who condemns him, they're actually the ones that are on trial, and they're actually condemning themselves in how they come to him negatively. And so Jesus understands this. And here are these scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus, and it seems so innocuous. It seems so innocent. Lord, just give us a sign. And I feel so like I, my conviction on this. How often, how I said, Lord, if you only do this, then I. <laughs> they think, oh, if I only lived during Jesus' time, my faith would be so much greater because I would witness the miracles. And the reality is, if I lived back then, I would say that guy's just a scam artist. He's ripping people off, just like I do about people today. Like, I, I, you know, it's thankfully by his grace, I've come to understand who he is. But in my flesh, I'm giving myself way too much credit, thinking that if I'd only lived then. Because today we still have the only miracle we really need, and that's the resurrection of Christ. And so look what he says in the first part of verse 39. He says, but he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign th- th- this is this is harsh, so Jesus looks at these religious leaders, and the first off he sa- he says that they're evil and adulterous now, so we can look at evil, and I think oh you this evil generation uh, a, a generation that that desires wickedness evil, terrible things. And so naturally where my mind goes when I hear the word evil, I start thinking about who are people in prison and what things have they done in prison that, or that what have they done to get themselves in prison? I mean, probably they've done stuff in prison too that's just as bad. And so my mind naturally goes that way when I hear the word evil. But who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees and scribes. They don't fit the picture of what I would understand as evil. These, 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 are, these are very religious people. These are people who keep the Sabbath to extreme measure, which we saw earlier in this chapter. These are, these are people who protect the Torah, who study the Torah, who, who lead Israel in religious things. That They are not people who I would necessarily identify as evil. I think, oh, they're religious people. But Jesus looks at this and says, you're a generation that craves evil. And then he says adulterous. I think we all know what adultery is. He's not talking about, oh, you guys are, are having infidelity with your spouses. He's talking about infidelity with their creator, with God. In, in the book of James, in the very first chapter, he says that, that you, you go to God, you've been asking him, but you're, you're adulterers. That you're asking him to, to bless you, but you're having an affair on God and you're living in the world. So when they ask for a sign, these religious leaders who have been all over Jesus, who have been looking to condemn him, who ultimately would condemn him. And as we look at the story of the Gospels, we get to the end. On Tuesday night Bible study, just this last week, we see that the thing, the, the, oh, we got enough to take him to trial. It, it It was this very account where Jesus, you know, from this story, he said, well, he said he was going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Like, and Jesus says, it's true, I am. And the high priest says, we got enough, we're taking him to trial, we can, we can proceed further. So he says, he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for his sign and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now this is interesting, now just historically, chronologically through the Bible, By the time Jesus is on scene, Jonah had happened many, many years ago. So this is past tense. And Jesus is saying to them, the only sign that you're going to get is the the sign of Jonah the prophet. And he's going to continue here. He says, um, verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a sea monster, so will the Son of Man be 3 days and 3 nights in the heart of the earth. The first point I want to sort of uh, just observe is how does Jesus handle scripture? Jesus is telling an Old Testament story who many liberal scholars today are saying, "Oh, this is just um an allegory. It's it's a it's a made-up story to sort of highlight a point." Yet Jesus uses the story of Jonah in a very literal sense. And if you go to the Hebrew in Jonah in the belly, like there's 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 a lot of concern, like not concern. Uh, Jonah was one of the books when I took Hebrew in seminary. We translated and we were learning Hebrew. And I remember getting to the point where there was the word dealing with Jonah in the belly. And that word means death, like that Jonah died. And I remember looking at the Hebrew professor. I'm like, I didn't think Jonah died in the belly. He's like, well, this this is a great discussion. This is something that scholars sort of like, the, the, it's, it, it can be vague. It definitely normally means death, but we typically don't think of people resurrecting. And now with Jesus' teaching, I'm more on the inclination, although this is like very left, like this is my left hand. See, I'm like left-handed, so I tend to guard stuff in my left hand more than the right hand, but the saying is you guard the stuff in the right hand and you, you die for the stuff in your right hand and you let the stuff in your left hand go. I tend to fight for my left hand and let the stuff in my right hand go, so I'm sort of backwards but but we don't know if Jonah died or, or did and i sort of tend to, like i tend to think that Jonah died and then he was resurrected but i don't like i wasn't there i don't know but jesus tells the story very literally and, and what's the story of Jonah these four chapters remember Jonah's a prophet uh, Jonah god spoke to and god says you need to go to Nineveh and you need to you need to go like all he had to do was basically go to Nineveh His message was that God's judgment is coming. The the, the message is literally, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He wasn't going there with a, a love and joy, kumbaya sort of message to the people of Nineveh. He was going there with, yeah, 40 days and God's wrath is coming. But Jonah did not want to go because the people of Nineveh were wicked. They were enemies of Israel. And Jonah knows his God. And his fear is that if he goes even with this harsh message, that the people might actually repent. And if they repent, then God's going to forgive them. So he goes the other direction and the great storm happens, remember? And then the the sailor's like, what is going on? We're on our way to Spain. And and the storm kicks up. We'll cast all our bags off. And then Jonah's like, listen, this is the deal. I'm running from God. It's me. You got to throw me over. And these poor sailors, are like, we gotta do what? And so eventually, they throw him over. He's swallowed by the fish. He spends some some uh, three nights away in a luxury resort of this fish. There's great speculation. You can read commentaries about what they think the stomach acid of this this giant fish would have done to his skin, the smell, the stench. He finally spit out onto the shore uh, in repentance. If you want to read about Nineveh, what Jonah, like, I believe that when he was spit up on the shore, and he starts working his way to Nineveh. The things he saw, if you want to do a study of Nahum, it's a tiny little uh, short uh, book, prophet, uh, prophecy book. Uh, one of the prophets, not prophecy, one of the prophet books in the Old Testament, uh, a few pages before Matthew. And Nahum chapter 3 really begins to show the uh, the, the hor- horribleness of Nineveh. Talks about that, that the straits of Nineveh, that they're so rampant with like murder and loss of life that the bodies are just like stacked up on the street and as much work as God did in Jonah's heart in the belly of the fish I think that as he walked in there and saw all of the death and destruction he was really struggling to stay faithful to God and so he walks into the streets and he carries his message yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown and to his uh, dismay what happened the word gets out all the way to the king. The king rips his clothes. He goes in uh, to fasting and mourning. He declares it to everybody, including the animals. So the whole town of Nineveh repents. It's Jonah's worst nightmare. And so then he goes up on the hill and he has a little pity party for himself and God delivers a plant and he's so happy there. And he's like, well, I'm going to be up here and just pray that God, like the, the lightning from heaven would come down and just wipe out all of the people. And then God goes ahead and he cuts down the little tree that he provided for a little comfort. And then he's crying, throwing a little temper tantrum up on the hill, like, how could God do this to me? What's wrong with God? I think the whole point of Jonah, the little, I think it's, the, 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 the Jonah is, the heart of Jonah, it's about Jonah, about God, like his little religious heart and seeing these Gentiles come to faith and how God had to kind of work in him. To soften him. So that's the story of Jonah. Let's see what G- Jesus says about Jonah. And no sign will be given to Jonah, will be given to it, the generation, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Verse 40 uh, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so we see this, this prophecy. You want a sign, you're going to get a sign. The miracle that you'll see is that I'm going to be murdered. I will die, I will be buried, I will be in the earth for three days, and then I will rise again. The the miracle that you will see is the resurrection. The only miracle that we need today is the miracle of the resurrection. There is no need for any further sign from God. The miracle of the resurrection of Christ is all we need. He goes on, he said, The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. He says, listen, at the end times, at the very, at the day, the day when all creation stands judgment for God, you'll all be standing there. And this generation, the generation that Jesus is addressing, these religious leaders, these Jews, who were standing on behalf of God, who had so missed the mark, they will be standing there. The people of Nineveh, these Gentiles, They are saved, and they're going to give judgment against this religious generation of the chosen people of God. And the people of Jesus' generation, these Pharisees and scribes and their whole generation, will be condemned by these Gentiles because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Did Jonah walk into Nineveh and do any, like, start doing cartwheels and stuff? Look at me, I'm going to start doing all these miracles. Let's do healings. Let's do all of this stuff to impress you, so that then all your answers will be answered about God, and then I'll, you know, you have some substance to place your faith, and that's not at all what happened. Jonah walked in, and he said, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown, and they repented at the preaching of the word of God. No miracle, no fancy things happened. And Jesus says that because they responded this way, they will condemn you. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He's saying, the Messiah is in your midst. The Messiah is standing before you. I am proclaiming to you that the kingdom of God is at hand. And you're playing these games with me. I've already done all sorts of miracles and signs authenticating who I am. Yet you just want one more. Ultimately, they will condemn Christ and and have him killed for these claims. That's a harsh message. Then he goes on to this, uh, the queen of the south. Now, who's the queen of the south? If you were to go back to 1 Kings chapter 10, the first 10 verses, there's a story of this queen. She was very wealthy um, from down in the Africa region. She'd gotten word about Solomon and his great wisdom, his great understanding of God. And so she wants to sit down with him. She wants to ask some questions about who is this God of Israel? Who is this God of the, uh, that he serves? And so she makes a journey from down south up to Israel. She brings all sorts of gifts and supplies. But the heart of it, she basically wants to sit down for an afternoon with him, share a cup of coffee, and ask some questions, uh, figuring out who God is. And so the story is that she asked all of these intriguing questions. And Solomon, with his great wisdom, this great relationship he had with God, and he explains to her everything he knows about God. And at the end of the day, she gave her life to to the God that he talked about, and she went away satisfied. And now Jesus says, the queen of the south will rise up with this generation. She was another Gentile at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom in Solomon. She responded to his words. No miracles, no no things with false faith. She had genuine questions. And now Solomon, the the wisest man, arguably in human history, definitely at their time, Solomon was the wisest man of all time. And he says something greater than Solomon is here and he's speaking of himself. And yet they're rejecting him. Now he goes on and he's going to tell a, a story that is a little bit difficult to understand. It doesn't seem to like the story he tells. There's not like biblical validation, like biblical validation for this is how demons operate. Uh, most scholars think that what he's doing is he's 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 reasoning with them by their understanding of demons. Now, I'll explain to you. Let's work through this. It says, uh, now, when the, unclean, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, remember, he just healed this guy. Or he, he'd healed this, this, this man that was demon-possessed who um, he, couldn't, what, he couldn't see and he couldn't hear or he couldn't speak and he couldn't hear. I forget the, which two options. But he had two of the three senses were, were gone or, or capabilities, functions. And so he says, now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, when a demon is cast out of a human... It passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. So this is the part that th- confuses scholars. Like I don't, it's not really a big deal to me. I'm just saying that for the, th- the one or two of you that care about that. Mm-hmm. So he says that when a when a demon's cast out, this demon basically it, it it needs a container to reside in, and so it sort of wanders the deserts where there's no wanders water, seeking for something to sort of embody. And it does not find it, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. So it leaves this this house, this residence, which is a person's body. It leaves. After it leaves, somebody cleans up the inside. And so when it can't find a place out in the desert where there's no water, it comes back to this person. It's like, hey, housekeeping came while I was gone. This is awesome. (laughs) Look at this, this place was a dump when I left, and now it's all cleaned up. I'm gonna go back and get some of my buddies, and then I'm gonna bring my buddies back, and we'll have another party in this guy's container, his body. It's, uh, verse 44, when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes out and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and they live there, and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first state. So when the one spirit or demon was living in the man, that was bad. But the spirit leaves. It's cast out. The person's all cleaned up. And then the spirit returns with seven of his buddies. And now the person is way worse off than the original state of just the one residing within him. i got to figure out how much before I start talking. Okay. Seven other spirits, verse forty-five. Then it goes out, takes along with seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. This is the um, that is the way it will also be with this evil generation. So he tells this 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 story of the spirit leaving, coming back, bringing seven buddies, and he says this is what this generation is like. Um, let me explain. It's believed that what's going on here. Remember, before Jesus, who came? John the Baptist. What was John the Baptist's message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John's ministry was phenomenal. He was, um, he was like the Billy Graham that could fill stadiums. Uh, I mean, a humorous ministry, in my opinion. I mean, there's, there's words that he's in the Jordan River seeing people, and he verbally is saying what their sins are publicly to every challenging people as they're coming to him. He's publicly identifying every sin. Can you imagine how humiliating this would be? I've often wondered if we should do our baptisms like this. Like, as people are like walking into the pool or the ocean service, so I mean, just like, they did this and this and this and this and this. Well, this is different baptism. It's not, Fortunately, I can't be as humored because I don't want to be, I don't want to happen it to me, so I'm not going to do it to others. But that was his ministry. There's this huge response by the crowds that they repented of their sins and their ways. They cleaned themselves up. They started acting Jewish. You know, they got the container nice and clean. But the problem is, Unless that void is filled with God, the externals aren't important. And some of the scribes and Pharisees, they were challenged by John. Remember, he called them, you brood of vipers, who warns you of the coming wrath? Why are you here? Uh, John MacArthur says this concerning this passage. I thought it was really good. He says, Christians cannot but be concerned about uh, moral and ethical issues. Because God's word is unequivocal and unmatched in its standard of righteous living, justice, and social responsibility. But Scripture also makes it clear that morality by itself, without a right relationship to God, is in many ways more dangerous than an immorality. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus repeatedly emphasizes that mere outward righteousness is of the greatest, one of the greatest hindrances to the gospel, the Pharisees were classic uh, moralists. He goes on to say that basically mor- morality leads to self-righteousness. And at the end of the day, self-righteousness is, is probably the most vile thing before the Lord. And, and so hear what Jesus is saying to all of these religious leaders. You might look good on the outside. You're doing your religion. You're, you're going to the Sabbath every day. You're, you're going through all of the motions, but it's external. And that's far worse than the tax collector, the prostitute, the person who's struggling. I think of today's sanctity of human life in so many ways in the church today. Not necessarily in our church, but I'm saying just that large. The church that will stand for the sanctity of human life will stand for the life in the womb. But when a single mom walks into church with a couple little kids and no dad and the kids make some noise... There's a whole lot of critical judgments towards that woman that I don't think is of Christ. And he is coming harsh at them, saying you might look good and all religiously, but you're empty and you're ultimately so far from the kingdom of God with your behavior and how you're acting, saying you just want a sign. This is a a harsh, harsh condemnation. I think that this is the, like, I don't want to say the final because the cross is the final, but this is like, from this point in Matthew, we take a different turn. There's going to be teaching and other things that are coming our way. But between the religious leaders, this is like the, the the game is on. The war has begun between him and them. I, I think of this week. I um. I, I you know, I, I hesitate saying this because I want to get through the whole year. But I started like reading through the Bible this year. Like I you know like I'm not to Leviticus yet. I think I'm going to hold strong. I'm, I'm like I, I mentioned this before. But one of the things I read, I'd never seen it before going through through uh, Genesis. And and uh, you know Jacob is is wrestling and in Genesis 28:16, Jacob said something that really caught my attention. Um, he said the, basically along the way, I'm, this is Gunner's paraphrase that the, he's like, the, the Lord is in this place, and I didn't even know it. Kind of like that God was amongst him working and he was totally oblivious to it. And I think of the Pharisees and scribes who they think that they're representing God, but in their arrogance and their self-righteousness, they miss the Messiah right before him. And I think that's so easy for us as as believers who've been walking with God for a while. We've got our routine. We do our thing. We've heard that story about Genesis. We've heard this story about Jesus before. We think we got it all figured out. And I think in our self righteousness, it's so easy to miss what God's doing right in our midst. And then, all of a sudden, in the midst of this, he's interrupted. Verse 46 While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Jesus has this huge crowd. Jesus has been sort of stirring a commotion. I imagine that the commotion that Jesus had been sort of stirring over the last few years made life a little bit difficult for his family. I don't think we really look at this. Like, what was going on with, with Mary? It's believed that Joseph, Joseph had passed away. Uh, you, you know, my, my Catholic background I probably shouldn't bring this up, but it always like strikes me because I was always told. Well, I was told a lot of stuff. I didn't listen to a lot of it. And a lot of my background, I can't blame on the Catholic Church at all. I love Catholics. My a lot of my family's still Catholic, but but we were told that 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 Mary was kept a perpetual vir- virgin, which would actually make her a terrible wife, um, which she wouldn't be. Like that's not how. God, like I say, I don't say that sort of flippantly. I'm saying that like God created marriage a certain way. And. And it, the Bible says that Joseph kept her uh, virgin until until Jesus was born, and then they had a normal marriage. They 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 had sexual relations. She had children. Jesus had brothers and sisters. It's plain as day. And so here, his brothers and his mom are outside. Like <sighs> we ain't talked to Jesus. It's like Jesus, you're in trouble. Your mom's here, and all your brothers are here. They've been hearing about the commotion. <laughs> Uh, like his, like I think his family was trying to contain him. His brothers certainly didn't believe. John tells us that, that it wasn't until after his death, burial, and resurrection that his brothers came to faith and then understood who his, who, who Jesus was. At this point, they weren't, and so they're outside, wanting to see him. Verse forty-seven. Someone said to him, "Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, seeking to speak to you." But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? It's kind of like he's teaching. He's, this, this is a teaching point for Jesus. He hears in the midst of this crowd that his brothers and his mom are out there. They want to speak to him. He says, Who are my mother and brothers? Now, I don't want us to go the wrong direction and suddenly think, Oh, Jesus was a punk kid that was terrible to his mom and brothers there 's no indication it 's believed like some some would say that jesus 's earthly ministry didn 't begin until thirty because uh, after his after Joseph passed away that he stayed and cared for for Mary, took care of his responsibilities as the older brother until the younger ones could then take on the responsibility We see on the cross as Jesus is dying, his mom and John are at the foot of the cross, and what happens there, Jesus looks to to Mary and he looks to John. And he says, behold your son, behold your mother. And that's saying to the youngest of all the apostles, the one who had lived to a ripe age, take care of my mom after I'm gone. Like, so this isn't saying, like Jesus didn't like disown his family. This isn't what that's saying. And our, and our, and our faith shouldn't necessarily remove us from our family, like for our non-believing family members. But Jesus then stretched out his hand towards his disciples, and he said, behold my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so his point is that those who are united um, in Christ, that there's something different about uh, the, the unity, the the brotherhood of the, those who are Christians. That if you're a Christian, that means that you've trusted in Christ we're told that when you trust in Christ, the Spirit of God indwells you. You're sealed by the Spirit. And there's, uh, if you have non-believing family members, there's a disconnect. There, there, there is a, there, there's something that your brothers and sisters in Christ, there's a relationship there that non-believers can't offer you. There's a lacking of fellowship. And I think he's highlighting the importance of of those who follow him, the, the unity of the church, the importance of. Uh, of being connected, uh, committed to one another, serving one another. You know, yesterday I saw a movie I really didn't want to see. Um, in many ways it was like terrible, but I felt it was like one of those movies I had to see. It was 13 hours. You know, A couple of my friends are in it, the two guys who killed the whole story in Benghazi. Two of them were my very dear friends. And so I felt obligated to go to the movie. Like it's like I'm not, this is not an endorsement on the movie. It's rated R. It's like there's language and hard scenes and it's always going to those movies that are like made about my friends. It's it's a surreal sort of thing, and it, it's like a reminder of like where I came from. It's like, oh yeah, that was my old world, like how they lived. And 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 I think that my understanding of church was was really um, formed by how I was groomed as a young man of the SEAL teams. Um, see, I don't view that church as something. Like that you just like God didn't die on the cross to give you an, something to do on Sundays for an hour. I think that's Charles Swindoll that said that. But, but he he died for us. He united us in family. This, this is, there's community here. This isn't a place to come for an hour and act like you got everything together. This is a place where we let our guard down, where we, we share with one another their struggles. I had an abortion. I struggled with it. I have scars that I need help. I'm struggling financially. I'm struggling in my relationships. I'm struggling in this. This is, this is a place where we come together to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to equip one another so that we can live our life for Him because there's a war going on out there that if you're in Christ, you're, go, you're swimming upstream from the whole culture around you. And I think this is the heart of what Jesus says, and I love it in this church. See, Bobby Workman lost her granddaughter two weeks ago. Horrible, painful situation. And so I'm grateful that this is a church where people say, "How can we help Bobby?" Yeah, like her funeral, we're going to be there to support her and care for her because she's our family. We're united in Christ, and we're here to serve her. All right, I'm trying to figure out if I want to continue that vein more, but I'll 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 stop. So when I look at this passage, this is one of those, like, the, what's? So so the big picture of this whole section, the scribes and Pharisees come up to Jesus. They say, hey, if you only do one more sign, we'll, well, I don't even think they made any obligation. But it's sort of insinuated, like, all we want to see is a sign from you. Like, just show us a a really good one. Like, these other ones, you know, like, better than healing the hand, better than casting out Like, give us a sign that will, like, take away all of our unbelief that we'll know for sure. And see, they were coming to God sort of dictating how things would be. Uh, And Jesus' response back to them, I think, shows the the whole posture of of humility that is required of us before God. We don't come to God shaking our fists. We don't come to God dictating to him how it's going to be. I think that God in this passage, it's, it, it, the, the theme here seems to be what God wants from us is humility before him. Humility in walking closer to him. Humility in receiving him as Christ. Like, like becoming a Christian, like the first step is humility. Like the first step is falling down on your knees and saying, I am a sinner and I am totally in bad shape. And my only way for hope is humbling myself before him and coming to Christ. Because he paid it all for me, it's by his blood that offers me peace with God, not by my own works. So the first step takes great humility. But then in walking with him, as he's Lord of your life, as we desire to serve him and, and to honor him with all that we do th- every day, there, there's, a, there's an illustration that um, Francis Chan tells. I, I don't think this ever happened, because I don't think he was making fun of his daughter, but he used his like young daughter, his young 12-year- old daughter as an illustration. I'm sure she got a big payout. You know, normally like when kids are used as illustration by pastors, that means that you, there's like a $20 bonus or something in it for you. And, uh, and he tells the story of like, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I, I asked my daughter to go clean her room. And I went away for a few hours. And I came back, and he saw that the room hadn't been cleaned. And he sees his daughter and he says, did, did you hear me? I had asked you to clean your room. She said, oh, yes, Dad. I, in fact, I memorized word for word what you said. Lisa, or whatever her name was, please go clean your room. So I've memorized it, Dad, word for word, every single word I have right, verbatim. In fact, I got all my friends together, and we've all memorized what you've said, and we've decided that we're going to start a small group to discuss and to analyze what it would look like if we actually lived out what you've commanded us to do. And so he makes this big point about, like, our, our following Christ. It's, it's that, that obedience, that following through. That this, this, it's not just about memorizing Bible verses and coming to certain and playing the part. It's about he is Lord. You know, as I end, thinking back to the whole illustration that F.F. That F. Bruce about the art museum. And I'm a terrible uh, connoisseur of the arts. I don't appreciate fine arts. I like, I like. It wasn't until I married Anna that I even knew. Like, well, we've been married for like ten years before it like dawned on me that uh, Picasso was from Spain. Like, I, I like, I didn't know who he was or anything. She would pop quiz, like, can you identify one of his paintings? And I failed. And then, I, like, like seeing this, it's. It, I think of my criticism of Christ before I came to him, and my criticism of him is only a condemnation to me because he is who he claims to be. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. My very life, every breath I have, it's because he's given it to me. And so any resistance that I give him is is an exposure of the condition of my heart, which really isn't good. And so my prayer is that we all would humble ourselves before him. If you've never come to a place where you've accepted Christ as your savior, that you would be able to humble yourself But in this story, the greatest warning is for the religious ones who their hearts began to get calloused, who thought that they knew more than God did, that we would humble ourselves before him and that we would live out our lives in a way that's pleasing to him. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you would expose self-righteousness in our own hearts. Father, I pray that you would guard us as a church from becoming like that of the scribes and Pharisees. Father, I pray that you would help us never to forget the condition that we were in before we came to know Christ as Savior. For many of us, we grew up in the church, we grew up in religion, we grew up focusing on the externals. And so, Father, I pray that you would strip us of any sort of self-righteousness that we have. And, Father, for those of us who came to Christ through the world, through um, different types of sins, Father, I pray that you would help um, us, Lord, to to heal fully, to know that um, through Christ's blood, we have been cleansed, we are forgiven. Lord, help us to forgive ourselves of the things that we've done in the past. Father, we thank you that you're a loving God, a kind God, a compassionate God. We thank you that your grace is sufficient. Father, help us to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to you. Lord, help us to view other people um, through your eyes. We have nothing to be boastful about. If we boast anything, may it be in the name of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.